This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab, a modern financial services firm that stands apart from the industry, where you can go as far as your ambition and unique talents take you to create a career worth owning. Hi, Jyoti. Thank you for joining us today. As a person with a tech background, what made you consider working for Schwab? I think although it's a financial company, it is technologically driven. You know, they're up on all the technologies and pretty much everything that's out in the market and this the standard to be used, they are there. And I think, yes, their domain is finance, but I think they are pretty technologically strong as well. I would like to tell the other programmers who think that Schwab is not a tech company, you're wrong. They have a very complex tech stack and it is going to be really interesting and very fulfilling to work here. To learn more about the technology career opportunities at Schwab, visit schwabjobs.com. That's Schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B-J-O-B-S dot com. Thank you, Jessica. And I'm here with Avdi Grimm. Thank you, John. And I am Avdi, and I am here with my friend and my favorite penguin aficionado, Kat Swatel. Greetings. Kat, Kat, what is your penguin superpower? My superpower, I think, but it's hard to tell what your own superpower is. I think my superpower is knowing what other people's superpowers are, potentially even before they do. Wow, that's meta. What's my superpower? (laughs) You have more than one and you know it. (laughs) What's the obvious next question? When did you discover this superpower? Probably when I started working. Uh, I started working when I was in junior high and high school. And I bust tables when I first started. And I rolled up silverware in napkins and I would put a little wax piece of paper around it to keep them all together. It was very engaging work. Did you get to exercise your superpower? (laughs) I think I did. Yeah. I mean, people think when you're doing that kind of work that everyone is kind of interchangeable, but they're not. There's some people that are a lot better at some things and Some people that are a lot better at other things, like people that are really extroverted and good at engaging people are probably great in the front of the house. And people that are really meticulous and organized are really good in the back of the house. And so everyone has a place. Do you still use that superpower today? Oh, oh, by the way, what do you do today? Today, I work at Ticketmaster. I manage the core ticketing platform. Yeah. And of course, I still use that superpower, uh, especially with the platform that I work on because it's very old. It's 43 years old. Wow. Uh, Yes. Yeah. That's older than me. Yeah. It's for sure older than me. (laughs) Yeah. By a long shot. Yeah. So what, what is that like managing a platform with such aged value? It is great. And it's especially cool at Ticketmaster because there's tons of people who were in the first round of employees ever hired. Tons of them still work there. And so like the other day, something happened and we found all of these weird configurations and things that we basically didn't even know that they existed. And it was so exciting because we got to actually go find the people (laughs) And ask them, why did you have it configured this way? I'm so curious. Do you remember? Oh my gosh. I think all of it, except for one weird thing, we found someone who remembered all of it. And just their stories are so great. Like one guy was a delivery driver or something, and he ended up managing all of the storage for all of the core platforms. And like, Another guy uh, was the owner of a record store, and he ended up being like the king of operations. (laughs) Two of the engineers on my team, they started in the call center. Another guy was a blackjack dealer that everyone from the office knew, and he ended up working there. Just all of these great stories. Yeah, it's cool to have that history. 
you know, and be trying new things. And the fact that they're also open to trying new things, like you were the seventh employee ever. And what have you been working on lately? Well, I've been tinkering with Kubernetes. Like, I just love that. That's the kind of technologist I want to be in 20 years, you know? Yeah, that's cool. And like, as an employee, as a part of that company, there's value to that history and there's value to the stuff we're learning now. Do their superpowers change over time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. And that's another really cool thing as the company evolves that you can see people's superpowers evolve. Um, one of the engineers that I work with who is amazing. I know I've talked about him before, at least to you, Avdi. He's just so great. And yeah, his superpowers have definitely changed over time. I think before I was there, his superpower was kind of bringing people together from all these different teams. And now he's really deep into the technical stuff, right? And so I find that really interesting that he's able to swing between more of a focus on people skills and more of a of a focus on technical skills. And I think that's great. Yeah, so I think it strikes me as a pretty unique experience at a nominally technology company that you would actually have that history available. Typically, it's just, well, you know, founder X you know, left 10 years ago, and now we have to piece it together. So that, that's actually really cool to have that kind of a context. Yeah, and it's also really cool that the founder of the company will often be seen roaming around. He's very open. You can just flag him down and say, hey, I always wondered why this exists. And he'll tell you the story of it. Oh, that that just conjured up in my mind a sort of fantastic, like, oral history of an application, especially one that's got as much history as that one. Like, you could tell it as almost like a performance. Like, in the, in the dark ages, you know, a, a server was forged in the darkness, and, and on it we put the code that did this and this and this, and and then came the, the trials of scaling, and we had to do all these things, and <laughs> it'd be so fun to write that. That would be an amazing epic, yeah. Yeah, but that's the kind of stuff that I love. And I feel like we're so quick in our industry to kind of mock history, right? And say, how could they be so stupid to think it's right to do this or that? And I feel like it's so important to have respect for the history of the industry of specific platforms. And it's really important to me. Yeah, these stories are a big deal. Opti and I were talking this morning about telling stories within code and how history matters. And I thought it was interesting that you said something happened and we found all these weird configurations that we didn't know existed. There's so much in the system that's working and you have no clue why. You have no clue. (laughs) Yes. We get to find that story. And a lot of the why isn't even related to the goals. It's related to the history of what we tried before and who tried it. Yeah, that for me is really interesting. The things that we take for granted, you know, it's ready to hand or whatever the phrase is, right? And it only becomes conspicuous when it's broken. And unfortunately, at least for me in my career, what I found with most of these platforms, I suppose, most of these applications that you don't have the history, it's stripped of context and you're left trying to get into some person's head that you're never going to know. And as you point out, it's hard to even have respect for that person when you don't have enough context to understand the decisions that they've encoded. Yeah, and it's often not just one person, right? It's a collection of contributions of people over time. So that's a lot of context that it's usually impossible to grasp. And maybe if we had epics like that, like the story of this platform that we have passed on, then maybe we can build empathy and have some of that context. Yeah, you need a bard on the team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Cross-functionality includes a bard. All right, totally. I'm waiting for the first time I see somebody with a business card that says software bard. <laughs> Counting straight now. <laughs> Richard Campbell is writing a history of .NET. I think we could. Huh. Think we could there you go. All right, yeah. so he's a bard. 
Yeah, because he, he, he knows it because he did this podcast. He's got like a thousand episodes of .NET Rocks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's See, So that makes us, us like level two bards. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of curious where your career has taken you in between the um, busing, tables? busing tables and the Ticketmaster periods. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. My dad worked always in some sort of operations function, so like network or whatever, just a bunch of different things like that when I was growing up. And he would bring me into work a lot, probably more than he should have. So I always really liked technology and it made sense to me. It was just logical and I liked that a lot. So I sort of knew that I wouldn't end up busing tables. So from there, I I went and got a finance degree because I was told that's what people do. They go get a business degree. My dad kind of told me that he watched a lot of the women that he admired in his career get treated not very nicely. And so maybe I should not do that thing that I like and do something that would, he thought, make me more money. And maybe people would be nicer to me, but I'm an idiot. So I went and got a finance degree, which is all men as well. And are people nicer to you? <laughs> when you're getting a finance degree, just no one's nice, I think. <laughs> you know, it's just very different than anything, really. So then um, I graduated and I got a finance job and I had that for eight weeks. I ended up in the application that this company used to manage calls in their call centers. I sat there and watched people go through all these workflows and I suspected that there were workflows that weren't exposed to the users in the call centers just based on, I don't know, clues kind of. And so I found some other workflows and exposed them to the users. And I got an award and the promise of a lifetime supply of popcorn in the cafeteria. And then I quit because it was clear to me that I should not be working in finance. I should be working in technology. And so the rest is kind of history. Workflows that weren't exposed to the users. Yeah. The call center employees. What does that like, like the, navigating between the screens. So you have to like navigate through the screens in a specific order, I guess. And some of the orders didn't make sense. And I knew that there there had to be some other way for them to navigate through the screens. So I found the other ways. And those those were already present in the software. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm sure it's the same thing, right? I'm sure that someone years before, there was some reason. But again, the application was ancient, like a bazillion years old. And I'm sure someone at some point had saw the need to lock down those workflows and not expose them to the users. And then at that point, it was not smart anymore. (laughs) Did he change settings in the app or something? Did he just teach the people, hey, click here? Um, well, I found ways that they could use keyboard shortcuts to make it to the other. And then yeah, after that, we realized that it made them much more efficient. So it became like a proper thing. Wow, that, that's just really interesting that, that the technology was like, it was already there. But you like explored the corners of it. You found you found the secret passages from room to room. <laughs> it did feel like a game. Yeah. Does that make you a rogue? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, you say that the rest is, is basically history, but I want to pick your brain a tiny bit more on this before we go on to other stuff, because I know that you're, like, I have this impression of you from talking to you at conferences that your route kind of went, you know, very differently from uh, mine and what a lot of technologists I know. Like, you know about things that I just don't, um, having to do with the the world of like consultancies and, oh yeah yeah and yeah like so I guess I, I just like I want a little more detail about what that route looked like uh, I kind of just bounced between consulting and being a proper employee I have been doing that for like the past 10 years I guess mm-hmm. yeah so when I first quit my finance job and said I can't do this anymore. I did go work for a short while for a consultancy that needed someone that had both business and technology knowledge. And so that was a good fit. I worked there and then, yeah, just kind of bounced back and forth between consulting and being an employee. 
It's been quite interesting. As you may have guessed, I'm not your typical consultant, right? And so my encounters with some of the larger big name consultancies have been interesting. Yeah, um, I don't know what's, which ones you can tell on the podcast, but you've definitely told me some interesting stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get it, right? Like when a company chooses to engage my services, they're typically looking for someone to see those things that aren't immediately obvious, right? And to be exploring things and sort of, yeah, treating their their systems as a game, you know, a fun challenge. And that's not why you would be engaging one of the big consultancies, right? You would be engaging them to probably find something unique and see if it's more broadly applicable to other portions of your business. I think it's cool that you get paid to explore the systems and see them in a new way. Yeah, I mean, it's been really fun. And the fact that like, you can kind of just say, I'm done. (laughs) When you're done exploring, right, you kind of prepare the report and say, these are my recommendations. Do you need any help getting started with that? But then if you say this is now boring to me, I think I'm done here. People are never like, oh, but we really wanted to pay you the rest of that money. Please don't go. You know, <laughs> That happens pretty infrequently. So I like that a lot about consulting. Yeah, you get to see the problems but not own them. Well, I mean, you want people to succeed and things like that. But once they've started implementing solutions or they have an idea of how to treat themselves, I guess, you don't have to stick around and hold their hand. I think that's not great anyway, right? You don't want people to develop a dependency on you. Yeah. And, and in a somathacy, in a learning system made of learning parts, the solutions really have to come from inside the system. Yep. So you can like tickle people. You can be like, hey, look at this and think about this. But then they have to look at it, find the idea in their heads, and then make it part of the system. Yeah, really your whole job is just to sensitize people to things that they couldn't observe before. Sort of perturb the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of seeing systems in a new light, um, there's a concept that I think you were the first to introduce me to. And then recently you gave a talk on it. Um, and that is the concept of wordly mapping. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit and about why you're interested in it? Yeah, wordly mapping. So I don't know how much people know about it, but... Um, nothing about it. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> At least some of our listeners know nothing about it. So Yeah, I'm certainly not going to be able to teach you everything about it in a few minutes, but generally it's examining value chains, all the things that have to come together to provide value to a set of users And it's mapping those chains on two axes. So the horizontal axis would be evolution. So things either evolve or die. Yes. So that axis goes from genesis to commodities. So things that are brand new, no one's ever done this before, to things that have become things that we take for granted. And then the vertical axis would be how visible it is to a user. So things that the user interacts with versus things that the user doesn't see. So that's wordly mapping and you take the different components of your system or systems that have to come together to provide value to the user and you map them on those axes. And then uh, you map movement as far as evolution or how visible something is to a user. And the reason I like it is for exactly the theme that we have been talking about here, right? It puts context around decisions that we make. It puts context around our strategies that we're employing. It puts con- it just gives us context in general. And it gives us a way to keep grounding in that context as the context continues to evolve. And I think that's really important. So often we end up with these artifacts that 
some consultant made for us or we generated at an offsite and it's like set in stone and you never touch it again. Whereas a Wardley map invites you to continue the conversation over time as things change. And I really like that. Can you give us an example of using a Wardley map to make a decision of what to do next? Yeah, I can give you an example that my mom and I <laughs> went through. Right. So my mom owns a business that puts on endurance cycling events. And she was debating whether she should, or she and I, not her by herself, but if we should create our own system for timing for the timing of riders, right? So that's typically like an RFID chip on their number and they cross the line, basically are right by the center and go and then they cross the line again and you know they're finished. So we were debating if we should make one of those ourselves from scratch or if we should find a company to do the timing for us, outsource it basically. Or if we should kick it real old school and just pay people to sit at the finish line and mark down when people finish. And originally, of course, because my mom and I are nerds, we were like, yeah, we're going to make our own thing. It's going to be so fun. We're just going to play with RFID all day long. It's going to be great. And then we'll own it. And maybe we'll even license it out to other people or give it away for free or all of these things. Then we started looking at what it would cost in terms of our time investment to actually create the thing and then ordering the chips all the time and do we actually have a place that can get us chips and then that would also mean that we would have to integrate with the registration system so that we could match the number plates to the riders and to their like emergency contact information and then we realized we probably always also have to integrate with these other things and so we, we mapped out all of that and it went from being one dot on the map to then being many, 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 many dots. And uh, so we started seriously looking at just paying people to sit at the finish line because we thought that'll be really cheap. We can just pay them to sit there and mark down numbers. But then we mapped that and it's not just paying people to sit sit there and mark down times for the numbers, right? We still had to do all the coordination for the number plates. We still had to create some sort of integration with the registration system to match the numbers to the riders. And on and on and on, all of these things, we had to pay the people sitting there, all this stuff, right? So we created those two maps, realized it was a lot more complicated than we initially thought and would cost a lot more money than we initially thought. And so then we went and just got bids from several different companies that you can outsource that to. And it ended up being way less cost, even though at first we had like sticker shock at the cost of uh, getting one of those companies. And so we had our three different maps and we said, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? This is not a brand new thing. We shouldn't be making it ourselves. This is a product that exists out in the world that we should just go purchase. So we did. How do you quantify evolution in this context? There's a ton of stuff out there about like diffusion curves and all of these. What is the total available population and to decide when something is diffused? And there's definitions for the categories that Wardley uses. Genesis custom product commodity, but I tend to think of it as how much do I think of this thing? So for Genesis, that would like consume all of my thought, right? My brain would be tinkering with that even when I was thinking about something else. And commodity, I never think about. And the other thing that I think is really important when you're thinking about worldly maps is you should be asking yourself, how does this ecosystem, how does this industry treat this component versus how do I treat it? Right. So I've been in lots of places where each server is a precious, sweet little baby that we care for with all of our hearts. 
uh, <laughs> or whatever instance of whatever platform. <laughs> but that's not how we should treat compute, right? Compute is a commodity. So it's very interesting when there's a mismatch there, right? Between my perception or my company's perception versus the industry's common perception when there's kind of a mismatch on the adoption or the diffusion. I like the part about the sticker shock there of there was a solution and we were like, oh my gosh, that is way too expensive. We can totally do it cheaper until you actually thought about all the stuff that went into doing it. Yeah. And that's, you know, the points in my career where I have been a leader of people and someone comes to me and says, I want to do this. It costs this much. I always ask myself, what is the opposite of that? How much does it cost to not do that? Right. And I think Worthy Maps kind of force you to consider the flip side of everything. Yeah. And how much does it cost in the things you have to think about? Yeah, exactly. And then there's also when you're looking at things that should be considered as a product or a commodity, you have a contract with the suppliers of those, right? And they have to live up to that contract. You don't pay for what you don't use, right? But if you are the one who owns whatever that thing is, you're responsible for the maintenance. You don't get anything back when it doesn't work, right? Yeah. And when it goes down, it's your problem because you Mm -hmm. have to gain enough understanding about that software to figure it out. Whereas if it's an external company, you can call a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ideally, right, when you start in Genesis, to provide that piece, that component, you'd need a lot of people, right, relative to the output. But for a commodity, what you're shooting for there is a relatively small number of people in relationship to the output. So if you see that you have the same number of people allocated to components all across that spectrum, then there's probably some sort of mismatch there. Oh, okay. So you can use the worldly map to map people according to their superpowers. Yeah, I do a lot of skills mapping on my Wardley maps. And there's a a guy based in Scotland, Chris McDermott, who's done a lot of work with mapping skills onto Wardley maps. I like that that you've discovered this tool that makes all these implicit things explicit. So that like you yourself, after doing much research, may have in your head like various ideas about people or systems and how available and commoditized they are. But being able to put up the map and say, here it is. This shows everything we need to know about this system. It's certainly a very powerful way of communicating like the conclusions you've reached about something and what should be the next steps. Yeah. And even just having the common language kind of forces you to ask yourself, what do we mean by these words and having that common language? Uh, there's a, an engineer on my team who's blind, and we still benefit a lot just from having that common language, right? Because he can hold a very complex model in his head, and I can't do that. <laughs> and so he can describe it to me using that language so that I can understand why he's kind of charting the course that he's charting. Kat, tell us something weird. Oh, I'll tell you some unpopular opinions that I have. Ooh, those are good. Janeway is the best captain. Duh. All right. Yeah. Uh, but Deep Space Nine is the best series. By best, do you mean like most fun to watch or most competent? Janeway was up against a very large challenge, and I think she handled it very well, right? There were people challenges and also challenges with just in the situation that she was in, and I thought she handled that very well. So both. I guess, for Janeway. For Deep Space Nine, it was like the best examination of what it means to be a human or a collection of humans, in my opinion. Okay, and for our listeners, uh, we're talking about Star Trek and the yes. very serious inside Star Trek. And and I, I feel that earlier we, we used D&D references with like levels and classes like Bard and Rogue. So that was from D&D. Sorry if you don't play D&D because we make these assumptions that all developers play D&D and they all watch Star Trek. So it's still totally cool to use those references. You just you just have to like give people the background. Um, so Kat, can you tell us like what show uh, Janeway was on and what those challenges were? 
She was on Voyager. She and her ship got flung into the Delta Quadrant very far away. She couldn't reach home. She couldn't communicate with home. And her crew was made up of people that hated each other. They were on different sides of the battle, I suppose. Yes. I like that in Star Trek, people is a much wider category than human. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yes. Beings of all sorts. I wonder if many people feel like that when they start a new job. They're like, I am so far from what I know, and these people all hate each other. Yeah, of course. Yeah, starting a new job is a lot like that, right? Because especially if you're going somewhere where people have a strong culture or been around a long time, you're the other. You're new. Do you have any advice for that? I don't know. What would Janeway do? (laughs) What would Janeway do? She would be her authentic self, Aldi. I figure the worst that can happen is they fire you. And if they don't want your authentic self, then you probably don't want to be there anyway. And we're lucky that in development, we can probably get another job. Yeah, we're so lucky in that regard. Makes me feel like I have an obligation to use that privilege for something meaningful, right? (laughs) Because I can't just go get a job anywhere else. What do you use it for at the moment? Or have you in the past? Or do you want to in the future? I guess I feel an obligation to speak up when I see something happening that I don't think should happen to let people know that it bothers me and I don't think it's right. To sensitize people to things that they couldn't observe before? (laughs) Yes, I suppose so. (laughs) That's a superpower of its own. Sure. I was actually talking to someone the other day about the whole, like, oh, we have a flat organization. You know, there's no real power structure here. And of course, that's almost all people. And how, like, I wonder if you could use the, the worldly maps to map the implicit power structure that actually exists in the organization. Yes, there's this Buddhist monk who has been traveling around mapping uh, power structures. Yeah, Tashin, yeah, he's been mapping power structures using a worldly map inspired maps that he calls Borea maps. Do you want to, oh, oh, tell people about the penguin thing. Yes. So I had a very traumatic experience with penguins. Abdi was there to witness the (laughs) the resulting penguin guilt, I believe, that I incurred. Uh, So we were in Australia going to these conferences and and we're in Melbourne and someone says, there's penguins. There's a collection of penguins. And you can go see them when they wake up in the evening to go out, you know, and catch whatever. Uh, So... We went out to see them, these little itty-bitty baby, they're not babies, but they are itty-bitty and they look so cute and snuggly and fairy penguins. We went to go see them and they start waking up and more and more people are coming. And there's so many people. And then there are like penguin guards that are wearing reflective vests and carrying red lights and stuff like this to protect the penguins because there are just so many people. And one poor little penguin will like pop its little head up and do like a yawn or something like that it's just waking up and the crowd like descends on this penguin and they have to be i don't know moderated by the penguin guards i don't even know how to describe it and there was one penguin it got up and it comes to the edge of the little path where everyone's supposed to stay and it was obvious it wanted to go somewhere but there were a bunch of people in its way so it couldn't cross the path And then more and more penguins started lining up with this other penguin. And so I look across the path. What could be on the other side of the path? It's a huge rock with penguin doo-doo all over it. So it's Oh, no. Oh, no. We blocked the path to the penguin park? Yes. So it's obvious they wake up in the morning. They need to do their business, right? Or in their morning or our evening. And then there's all these people blocking the penguin path to the penguin potty. And finally, I, you know, I'm trying to like alert the guards to this penguin potty situation. And finally, the guards come over and like the penguins need to cross. And they do. But it was just so I really had a difficult time with it that they can't even use the bathroom, the penguin potty in the way that they would like to because they're there just all up in their business in more ways than one and was extremely upsetting. But then lots of people brought up to me, well, penguins choose to keep living there you know so they must have access to like a lot of great food and it must be worth it to have to wait for the penguin potty or something i don't know but i couldn't deal with it i left 
But I did really like how the penguins like kind of emerged from their slumber. They did this cool stretching thing where they put their wings back and like really took up a lot of space for a little tiny penguin, like just really out there. So I've learned a lot through consulting about these power poses that you take where you like put your hands behind your head and you take up a lot of space and you cross your ankle over your knee and like spread your legs out or something. I didn't say I was good at those poses, but I had learned about them. So I thought I'll adopt this penguin pose as my power pose. And then I believe you were there to observe me walking onto stage in a penguin manner. And for the record, I was very intimidated. (laughs) Everyone was. Everyone in the whole room. It was obvious by the looks on their faces. But if I had wanted to park the crowd to go use the penguin potty at that point, I would have been free to do that. (laughs) The lesson today is that there is such a thing as too cute. (laughs) Yes. Maybe this is one reason babies use diapers, because... They're just too cute to get to the bottom of the morning. Too cute to poop. (laughs) Okay, episode title. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like the people in the path, wouldn't they like empathize with the penguins? Or look around, but this is the same thing again, right? They're so focused on the penguin that they don't... They do a wider view of the system and say, what am I standing in the way of? Yeah, they're so in their experience of the penguin that they're not thinking, like, what's the penguin after? Seems a little weird for a penguin to be here facing the land instead of facing the sea. I didn't think that's what penguins did. Can we figure out their plan? Because penguins just don't give you good error messages. (laughs) No. No. Yeah. Extremely lacking in that regard. E too cute fourteen hundred. <laughs> <laughs> and also, how do you not notice when you're damn near about to trip over just a giant poo covered rock? <laughs> so that's my career, looking for giant poo covered rocks. <laughs> yeah, it takes a wider view of the system. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't just give the penguins a keyboard shortcut. <laughs> That would be great if I could. Maybe we can make something that they can like just step on and it does something to scare the crowd out of the way or like somehow or like illuminate a little path like with flashing lights, like get out of the path. Yeah, like pooping penguin crossing. Or even if it just alerted the penguin guard, like we're ready. Oh, yeah, that's gathered here. It's time. You need to send the alert to someone who can do something about it. Someone who has the context to understand both the objective and to see and influence the obstacles. Yes. Give the penguins the tools to help themselves. (laughs) At least (laughs) self-service. Can you think of any particular giant poo-covered rocks that that developers (laughs) are failing to notice these days? Boy, there's so many, it's hard to just pick one. So much poop! (laughs) I think more than any specific poo-covered rock, I think it's giving people an opportunity to observe things like that, like a break. You know what I mean? I feel like everything we've gone from like, let's make things shorter. Let's do uh, iterative and incremental development and we'll have these short time boxes to now everything is continuous. And that's good in that it helps us ingest information more quickly, right? But it's not always good, I think, in terms of providing us with a chance to think and examine not just the system in which we exist, but also how we participate in that system and our own bias or the kind of uh, muscle memory that we develop, right? And so I just wish there were more things that would prompt us to have a moment to think. And if we were giving ourselves a moment to think, what would that do to our users? Right. I have to believe that that would manifest in the systems that we create, kind of like a Conway's law ish, right? 
And so if we provided ourselves these moments to reflect, then maybe we provide our users with moments to reflect. And then maybe we get people participating in these ecosystems and movements that are facilitated by the platforms that we're creating. Maybe we give them the opportunity to participate more thoughtfully and responsibly. Like it's really easy to share something on Facebook, right? And it just keeps getting easier. And maybe that's not right. Like is easy good? I guess we want to make the good things easy, but what we've made easy is share on Facebook. It's not sit back and zoom up and see mm-hmm. all the drop on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's superficially ironic, but it's not ironic at all. The people that I know in the agile movement and I mean the like who were in the original lowercase agile movement are now talking about how do we stop and think? Because when all we were doing was big upfront design and trying to front load up the thinking, we needed to move to someplace more continuous. But now that we're obsessed with continuous and iterative and daily stand-ups, we need to move to someplace more reflective. Yeah. And regardless of how quickly we are going, we need to come to terms with the fact that we are creating systems that will have a life of its own, right? Like the platform I work on is 43 years old. So we are creating these systems that will exist for an amount of time that we're not even sure, right? They'll continue to evolve. And I, it just scares me that we're doing all of these things so, 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 so quickly, just as fast as we can go. And is it as fast as we should go? And is it okay to go fast if you are able to zoom out and have a very large present or zoom in and have a very compact present. I think these are important things. Like it in my consulting career, it's been very scary. Some of the times when you go talk to an executive who's talking about like, what are we doing today? What are we doing for the next month? And I think to myself, who's thinking about the next five years or longer, right? Because your contributions, especially for us right now, right? Computing is so new. We love to act like, oh, we're a very mature industry. We're engineers, all of these things, right? It's all very new. And so each one of us is going to have like relative to future generations, a much greater impact because in future generations, there will be more people participating in technology ecosystems and creating them, right? So each one of us, just surely the numbers, right? That there are so few of us, we will have a greater impact. And I don't think we take that as seriously as we should. Yeah, like you said, it gets back to the history thing. Why should we care about the history of our systems? Because we care about the future of our system. I think that's one of our superpowers as humans is that we're able to zoom in and out from, like you said, the large present versus the compact present. We can step back and one day think about the five years and the next day think about this week. Mm -hmm. I'm gathering from what you're saying, Kat, that for this kind of reflection, retrospectives aren't enough. No, I don't think so. In the way that you create actions, right? Through that, you need time to reflect and be conscious of how you arrived at those actions, how you personally arrived at those actions, right? How you constructed that option set. Ooh, and how, not just why, because why describes your objectives, but how include the stream. Right. Yeah, and we all start with a set of circumstances and then we get the socialization and it, again, filters what we're able to perceive from the facts of our reality. So we need time to examine our own blind spots. Yeah, that's one of the things I um, enjoy about uh, bringing a new person onto the team is, you know, after a month or two, asking them, so what seems really weird here? What don't you get? What what are the whys that you're missing out, like that we could use your newness as a way to look back at ourselves and see what we're missing? Yeah, I totally love that experience when you get to see yourself through someone else's eyes. Yeah, I just love that. Yeah. Oh, we mentioned blind spots. We act like Blind spots are the exception. Like we see everything except this particular blue color rock. No, no, our, our 
those, those are the common case. Our perceptions are very narrow and they have to be because we can't look at the whole system while we're trying to make a decision about what to type in this function. And we're focused on how cute that penguin is. And we're trying to appreciate the fact that it's right in front of us. And isn't that wonderful? No, get out of the way. Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah, it's scary too, right? That you know that so much of the world is stuff that you cannot see. And that's why I just don't know how people aren't terrified of that, how leaders aren't terrified of that. How do you not feel this strong urge to get people who have a different socialization, right? So that you can more frequently have that experience of seeing yourself, your systems through those fresh or different eyes, right? I think the best team I've probably ever been on was an economist, a former mainframe developer turned program manager. Yeah. (laughs) It was just such a weird group. (laughs) A designer who, yeah, just had all of these interesting experiences. And then each of the developers was just so different, right? One of them had gone from being a sysadmin to a developer. And it was just the strangest collection of people. And it felt like, you know, you have that feeling when you miss something. Where it's just like your heart sinks, you feel it in your stomach, right? And you're kind of just like, how did I miss this? It's so obvious. I just didn't find myself having that feeling. Even when something would get messed up or something would fail, right? We'd still be saying, yeah, we kind of knew that was a possibility. It's just, we, you know, you, you can't upfront have these remediations for everything, right? We just felt like we were making informed decisions about what we were going to prioritize. Yeah, Kat, that, that sounds like a camarada. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We all still keep in touch and yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And you've all gone, gone on to do different great things. Yep. Yeah. That was a company you were working at? Yeah, it was during my consulting time. Yeah, it was a ragtag bunch that we assembled. Yeah, Arlo Belshi at Deliver Agile was talking about uh, something similar, a team that was just like of people from really different backgrounds and how that launched his career. Mm-hmm. There's another person we need to get on the show. So John, I agree with you. It's time to wrap up and move to reflections if we have reflections. Because there's so much good poop in here already. I, I, I just feel like if we keep going, we'll overwhelm it. <laughs> John, do you have a reflection? Uh, yeah. Like, there's, there are two things that are striking me. One is the sort of history of an application. Like, I'm working on an application that's close to 10 years old now. And it's got a lot of history and there are things that I don't know because I wasn't here at the beginning. And I'm sort of wondering what would be involved in, like, having part of my role be, like, like maintaining a history of like, and this is what we were doing, and this is why we decided what we were doing, and this is why this is the way that is. And then this thing happened, and then we reacted to that by doing this. And like, I, I just imagine that that would be so helpful, a to socialize people onto the team, into the history of what they're working on when they join, but also as a debugging aid to sort of be like, what was going on in this part of the code six years ago that it's it's now shaped like this. Wow, I love that. Uh, I I don't think this episode needs any reflections. I think it is already shining and bright. I love the quote about so much of the world is what we can't see. And darn it, there's value in those poop-covered rocks. <laughs> and I love that we took that analogy so far. And I know on this podcast, we are going to continue coming back to that. <laughs> and we'll have to explain it like the Janeway reference. <laughs> but you've heard it here, people. Greater than code. Penguin. And poop. Yeah, I think that's the thing I take away is just uh, where I see a bunch of people trying to get somewhere that I don't understand, look for the poop-covered rock. (laughs) Something that I'm just going to keep thinking about is what it would look like if we had a platform barred or some sort of like poet or historian and appreciated that ability and captured those things and... Yeah, what would happen if we made that part of onboarding or any of that? That's such a great idea. It's like a, a counterpart to what we can deduce from the code. A librarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
No, I didn't, with a surprise reflection. You didn't know she was here. Well, I came into the show late and stuff, so I've just been kind of hanging out and listening to all this. And these last few minutes, I've really just been blown away by thinking about how we get so caught up in this game of making everything faster and faster and got to go to continuous, got to shorten and shorten the moment. And what happens in that when we get so caught up in that place that we can only see the emergency that's right in front of us is we lose our ability to step out of the system. We don't see the box that we're inside. We can't see the boxes. We can't see the poop covered rocks because we're like stuck inside the system. And one of the practices I think we need to start adopting is scheduling specific time to take a step out of the system, to stop and think, to look at the boxes and to reflect on what we independently think, what we see inside our own brains before we talk to other people. And that when everything is a group discussion, it's so easy to listen to what other people think and go, well, that makes sense. And then just adopt that story as our own. And so you don't get that camarada effect. You don't get that magical synergy that comes from seeing in 10 different ways because we lose the power of our individual uniqueness when we reflect only in a group. And I think if we set up deliberate reflection processes to step out of the system, to stop and think, and we set up practices to do that as individuals, and then came together as a team after we'd formed our individual ideas, I think we could get so much better so much better at improving the quality of our decisions in both the moment, the things that we're making decisions with right now, but also really thinking about our future and the direction that we're going as a team, as an organization, as a community, as a world. And especially right now, I think it's really important that we all take a step out of the box and really think about the direction that we're going. Yay! This has been episode 131 of Greater Than Code with special guest Kat Switchell. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Where can people see more of you? Well, I'm Kat Switchell pretty much everywhere. So if you want to get a hold of me, I'm Kat Switchell, C-A-T-S-W-E-T-E-L on Twitter or at Gmail. And yeah, if you get a chance, watch some of Kat's talks. Thank you, everyone. 